Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We're excited to be here today. We're hoping to share some information and experiences with the float back. Um, So before we get started in that, I wanted to just announce Melissa and I have an exciting thing we're launching here at the beginning of May. We've mentioned it in our previous episode, but in case you didn't hear it on there, I want to share with you a little about our Patreon platform. So we have been working on this idea for a little while and are finally getting it all put into place, but we've had a lot of listeners and um, people reach out looking for more resources and more support. So we're hoping that using this Patreon account, in case you're not familiar with what it is, um, that we can get that to you all. But basically there's tier different tiers of access that you would have and through each tier there's um, different resources that we may offer anywhere from um, all the way you know as great as consultation calls group consultation with us where we can answer your questions a platform to write in and ask us questions where we'll kind of combine a lot several different questions and do an episode where we just get to reach out and answer those we're hoping just to have a variety of different things that we can offer to you all through that with different um access levels on that. So be watching for that. We'll give you more information as we get closer to it. We're really excited at that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I love Patreon. I support a lot of different Patreons. Um, Okay. So today we are going to talk about the float back, which I don't know about you, Jim, but this is one of the things that I get a lot of questions about on consultation calls. Um, It's one of our like sledgehammer slash scalpel tools when you know in the emdr world um and it's incredibly powerful and incredibly important and i think it's one of the things that i see either really overused Mm -hmm. or totally underused because people get nervous about it and they forget it yeah because we don't use it super often if that's not how you were trained um so the thing about floatback is that when it comes to your initial training, different trainers teach this pretty differently. Very so there's differently. N- yeah, there's not a lot of consistency um, in the MDR community about how this is being trained and what our understanding is of when it's best to be used. So we're just going to present to you guys all the different options um, and what we have personally experienced in terms of when it's the most effective, when we like to apply it, and what we've seen uh, with our clients. And I'll, I'll just say, Melissa, that I think some of that variation has come from like the history of EMDR and the way it's developed, and there's mm-hmm. been these different pushes um, from trainers throughout you know, MDRA who have said, okay, this is how we use it here, and now we're changing that. We're seeing it's more often used here. So it mm-hmm. is a constantly evolving tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think different therapists use it a variety of ways we'll share kind of our experiences with it and i want to just give some ideas of how you can use it because it's definitely a versatile tool yeah that you can use in different ways and so historically 
Um, there's been these different movements and pushes to, do we use it with every single client and it's fit in as part of the process, or do we use it selectively only when it's appropriate? Um, into, I see a lot of therapists, like you mentioned, don't use it at all. Mm -hmm. And it's not even a, a tool in their toolbox. So we'll kind of give the spectrum of ideas of how you can use it. And then you can determine how does this integrate into what I'm doing and your comfort level based on the clients that you work with yeah. in using it. Yeah. One of the things that I will say is, if you're not using it at all, um, this is one of the things that I think really differentiates between EMDR working for a lot of people and EMDR being able to work for almost everybody. Yeah. Um, it, it, I really, really believe it's a missing piece um, that we need to get more comfortable with. And even though it's powerful and even though, you know, a lot of people get nervous because it is so powerful, if we're not using it, we're really kind of underserving our clients. And I know that feels like a big statement, but I kind of mean it. Um, when I was trained, this was like the first thing we did with everybody. Like, hello, nice to meet you. Let's flip back to your worst moment. <laughs> I know. And you did it with it everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was, it was just the standard uh, method for history taking. Um, and I think I've shared on here before you guys that it was actually a demonstration of the float back that convinced me to get trained in mm -hmm. EMDR. Um, because it really, really is that profound. Um, and I think that for clients, it can have that impact of, oh, this is different mm -hmm. than therapy that I've done before. You know, something we're getting to the root of something. So if you have clients that, you know, are really well resourced, maybe they're a therapist themselves, we've got no issues in terms of fears of decompensation, doing it really quickly can work great. Mm -hmm. What my personal experience was, though, is that I was so excited about it post training, because it had been such a powerful experience for me, I'd seen it work at training. So I went home and started applying it with every client that walked through my door. And suddenly I had clients decompensating and flooding. And I panicked and they panicked. And I mm -hmm. thought, mm, something's wrong here. Yeah. And so when I started investigating this and discovering like, oh, there's different ways to use this. Um, and the, the skill of applying it with a little bit more uh, reflection and care, um, I still use it a lot on a regular, regular basis, but it is not the first thing I do. In fact, it's not even anywhere close to the first thing I do for most people. Mm -hmm. So what's your experience with it, Ben? Yeah, I think it has been therapeutic completely standing alone for mm -hmm. several of my clients, for myself yeah. even. Uh, but there's a therapeutic value that it holds without anything else. So just doing it, of course, is not full EMDR. But there is um, value that it has just in and of itself. I think a lot of times clients learning where their present symptoms come from, yeah. where it's not, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me, I can't, there's nothing I can do about it, I'm just stuck this way, it's just genetic or generational, so either I have no hope. Mm -hmm. And it, it changes the focus from being on managing symptoms into understanding where it started in the problem and we have a, now we have a solution to offer. Yeah in that. And so it completely changes the focus of therapy and can change the focus for the clients and open up this huge window of hope of, okay, so if I understand that and there's something that we can do to address that, maybe I don't have to just live with this symptom forever and continuously be managing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that alone, I've seen this huge like freeing experience of that 
On the same, <laughs> on the same note, though, there can also be a shock value to learning and understanding how much there can be there in those deepest roots of the trauma and how um, sometimes you're discovering, oh, wow, this interaction as a kid, like my symptoms go back to this early interaction as a kid. And now I see my family set up a little bit differently. Um, I'm looking at these relationships very differently. And so that can be eye-opening and maybe a shocking and overwhelming way for Mm -hmm. clients too. Mm -hmm. So just as wonderful as as it is, it comes with its own um, burdens and struggles with that much information. Yeah. So it can be validating and reassuring to a client, but it can also be startling to a client. So we've got to have that knowledge going into it so we can determine what is our, we don't know what the outcome is going to be for them when we do it. And so what do resources and supports do we need to have in place before we jump into this so that we know we can navigate that with them? Um, And then even kind of preparing them in those ways as we do that. So it doesn't have to be presented as a big, scary thing, but just letting them know, you know, as we do a float back, we're not really sure what could come up. And it may be surprising to me, but it could also be surprising to you Mm -hmm. what this could connect with. Yeah. Well, and just a point there, and we we are going to go through, you know, exactly how you do this with a client. And um, and so that'll kind of put all the pieces together if you guys don't remember exactly what it sounds like to do this. Um, but just a point as we're getting into it, when, when we're talking about doing a float back, you can go all the way, and usually we do, to the very earliest, the very first time that they can ever remember something associated um, to whatever the, the symptom is that we're starting with. But it is not necessary to do that in order to get value from this. So when that gets really important is, let's say we're starting with something in the present and we're going to float back to the past to figure out what's there. And we get back to, say, an eight-year-old memory and the client's body gets real tense and their eyes get big and wide and we realize, oh, we've just happened on something that's a little intense for them. So if that happens... I may not ask the next question and say, well, maybe we can find something at five years old and four years old and three years old. If they're having a pretty intense reaction to what we just found at eight years old, maybe we stop there. Maybe we just hang out there and make sure that they're going to tolerate that information um, and that we have the resources in place that we need. And if that goes okay, then we can go further. But don't feel like just because you start that you have to go all the way to the earliest. Um, It's okay to pull the plug if you feel like you're not ready to go there, or if the client is not ready to go there, it is always better to bail on our plan and reevaluate and go slower um, than to keep going just because that's what our agenda was for the day. And we can get a lot of good information from a half float back. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, there can yes. be a lot that can be worked with and a lot of information for that client that it would definitely still be a beneficial thing to use that just because our scripts might walk us all the way through to the mm-hmm. touchstone or the earliest experience um, doesn't mean we have to stick to that. We can yeah. stray from that when it's best for our clients for sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I kind of conceptualize float back in two categories. I, I see it as a one is a reactive approach and then one is a proactive approach. And even within those two categories, breaking that down So I want to start in just explaining um, those two approaches. So with a proactive float back approach, what we're looking at is we're using this as a way to to structure the process that we're going to do moving forward. So it's to help us structure what targets are we going to use, helping us find what those targets are. So in that proactive category, 
there's um, kind of a more surface level float back or a more conscious, we're accessing their conscious memories, their thoughts, their um, explicit memories. And that I oftentimes do in a more um, just verbal kind of talking through almost history taking like approach. So in this way, we might use that in the history taking where we're getting information, but we want to know specifically which experiences fall into that same memory network. So which ones tie in with this, with the same negative belief, the same emotion, the same body sensation. And that's how a lot of people will have been trained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to do that. It does, you know, and it can be just conversational back and forth and um, less scripted, less intense, more just kind of casual conversation. We're saying, okay, um, so that happened when you were 15. Now, as you think about that same kind of belief system, what other experiences happened earlier that might kind of go in with that same feeling for you or that same belief for you? So it's very conversational. Um, and it's more accessing explicit memories, things that they're already aware of on a conscious level that tie in. Now there's the more, um, I guess I was a subconscious accessing where we're asking them to really tap into that memory network and see what's under it. This is the approach that we might find things that they don't even recognize or associate with that. Sometimes memories that they'll say like, oh my gosh, I haven't thought of that in years or mm-hmm. Wow, I almost, I totally forgot that even happened. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more where we get this response. And the difference in that is I'll have clients close their eyes, pull up the image of, you know, the recent um, experience that we're starting with, pull up the image of the worst part, identify the negative cognition, the emotion, and the body sensation, and float back. And when I do this approach, my voice slows down a lot. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of long pauses. Um, their eyes are closed if they're comfortable and they're kind of, they're moving inward. So they're not just going through their explicit memories, but they're actually potentially tapping into more implicitly stored memories. Yeah. And we, we actually want them to be getting into those memory networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and this right here, you guys is why this is the scalpel version, Yeah. right? This is when we're kind of cutting to the very core of what's going on. And if flooding and decompensation is going to happen, it would be right here when it yeah. happens, not to terrify yeah. you. But this is just the moment where we as the therapist are like super tuned in. Our therapist's spidey sense is on full alert yeah. and we're really, really paying attention to how they're doing. We're watching their mm-hmm. responses verbally, but also all their nonverbal responses. Yeah. We're looking for those to make sure they're regulated this is where we're going to really want to make sure we've got good containment skills already set up yeah. in place before starting this. So um, it, as I mentioned before, it can be really powerful, good and bad. Um, I'd say more often times than not that I see it good yeah. in a very positive light. Yeah. So we want to be there with them, be there to support them um, as they're going through this. But And in the demonstration we do later, you'll, you'll see more word for word how we walk through that. But the key pieces in that is we're really having them go inward and access those. And sometimes new things pop up in that. Mm -hmm. The second category of a reactive approach to it is when we're, we are already targeting a memory and we're processing is already happening. And let's say they're stuck or they're blocked or a new thing pops up in that 
we may bring in Floatback as a reactive tool to that to manage that blocked processing or to manage that stuck point for them. Or even if a new associated memory comes in and we want to say, well, if that one popped up, maybe there's even something else earlier. So that's when in the midst of processing, we would go in and we would do a float back. And so we would have them pull up the key pieces of the memory they're currently working on and float back to any earlier experiences that connect with those same pieces, the same belief, the same emotion, the same body sensation. Mm-hmm. And this is using this is using the float back like a cognitive interweave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a couple of different ways to do this. And it's a really, really kind of practical decision that we have to make as a therapist. Let's say client comes in, you start processing, they're associating, and suddenly you hit on a much earlier memory and you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's a blocking memory back there. And in order for this target that we started with today to clear, we're going to have to get those earlier things. So right there would be a really natural time to put in a float back as a cognitive interweave in order to find those blocking memories and clear those out. And there's some decision points that you have to make when you decide to use it as a cognitive interweave. Then the question is, do you stop and start a whole new target Mm -hmm. with what you find that day? Or do you consider it just an associated memory and just keep noticing and not reassess as a whole new target? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a decision point that you have to make. The other thing to really consider is very practically, how much time do you have? Yeah. Never do this at the end of a session. No, that is the wrong time. So if you're going to do a float back as an interweave, sometimes it's really appropriate to wait until the beginning of next session and say, before we reevaluate this target and move back into processing what we started last time, let's do this float back to make sure that we're not missing anything that might be really relevant. Um, And then that way you have the whole session to deal with whatever comes up. For some clients, a float back will take the majority of the session, especially if we're uh, doing a good job with containment um, after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, that re- reactive approach as an interweave, um, we have to be determining in that, like, are we shifting over to that new memory becomes the new target? And this is where a lot of consultees that I work with get kind of confused in the treatment planning of it. What's our approach to all of this? Of What target are we really working on? Do we go back once we have it? Mm-hmm. And there's no right or wrong. It's really the determining as the therapist what's best for them and then even letting them have the feedback on that of does this feel like let's say um, they get blocked and we use the float back as an interweave and we find a feeder memory um, a memory that goes back earlier let the client have a voice in that and determining how do you feel about shifting our focus to that feeder memory because what we see is that it has a big impact on the later memory mm-hmm. um, or do you want to recontain that i make note of it and we readdress at another time but we go back to focusing on the present experience so you may have you know a hunch as the therapist of what's needed but also letting them have a voice in determining do they feel ready because mm-hmm. what comes up they may be saying oh no i I totally shut that away for a reason and I'm not going there. Mm-hmm. So there may be more preparation that has to happen before they're ready to go into processing. That's right. That new. And I think it, at the high level, what really helps us stay clear and kind of out of the weeds mentally as the therapist 
is that no matter what we're doing, no matter which route we decide to take, it is always focused on the goal of resolving the present presentation of symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. So just as an example for us to walk through, somebody comes in, they're having anxiety at work. Every time they talk to their boss, they have a panic attack. So we start processing the most recent experience where they have a panic attack with their boss. And we figure out, okay, there's a blocking memory there somewhere. We decide to use the float back. We find those memories, and then we're going to have a collaborative discussion, like Jen is saying, with the client about do we go back to those? Because the truth is, that's probably where the real trauma is. And until we get those resolved, the stuff with the boss is not really going to shift. And the client has every right to have a lot of input on whether or not they are ready to go there. Because if they didn't come in saying, I'm ready to work on my childhood trauma, Mm -hmm. we don't want to just assume that they're willing to do that. So we need to lay out the options for them. One of the one of the real options is to say, if we decide to not focus on that childhood trauma, and to contain it, then it may be that we don't get to a zero sud on the current presentation because we know that there's stuff back there that's feeding that. And it's really appropriate and fair for us to tell the client, we can make some progress on this, but there may be some lingering anxiety, but at least we'll know why. Yeah. And be able to kind of separate those things for the client. That, especially if we have limited time with a client, sometimes that is the most therapeutic thing for them. I love that you bring that up Mm -hmm. because it's, I think really within the last year or two, two years, I'm becoming more and more aware of, how wrapped up we can get into in our little trauma-informed minds Mm -hmm. and where it all ties back to. And we've got this great approach to clear out all these things, Mm -hmm. but that's not always what's best for the client and in that moment. And sometimes by going back and opening up, even though in the long run, that's awesome. If we could clear everything, we get these perfectly clean memory networks. (laughs) That's what I picture in my head. It's all shiny clean. But sometimes that's not realistic. That's not supportive of them. Whatever they're coming in struggling with, as Melissa was giving the example, that may actually create all this new anxiety because Mm -hmm. we're tapping into something that's now associated with family of origin and there's all these big things there. And now it's like, oh my gosh, I can't regulate. I came to address this one thing and I've got all of this now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that's the norm by any means, but just always keeping the very first thing is what's going to help them alleviate the current symptoms that they came in trying to address unless they change the direction of the treatment focus and say, yeah, that's there. I really do want to work on that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, really making sure that that's a collaborative decision, factoring in the practical things like how much time do we have with them? Do they have the the financial um, opportunity to invest in their treatment in that way is now a good time? A lot of times what will happen um, is that it's more of a timing thing. And so we'll say, okay, we're going to resolve this to the best of our ability, but maybe in a couple of months when things have settled down a little bit, we're going to come back and revisit that. And I have a lot of clients that return when they feel ready for that work or because we've you know, done a good job with the stuff that's coming up in their present life. At some point they go, okay, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready to go back there and do that deep work partly because they have experienced the power of EMDR in a really safe and contained way. Um, So remembering that we have to prioritize what's best for them in that moment. 
But the float back is the thing that is going to help us get to that core issue, whatever that thing is. And at the very, very least, the client is going to understand themselves so much more. Um, And that is the real power of the float back. Yeah. And if we are looking at, especially with complex trauma, I'd say this applies more so with that. But in complex trauma, if we're looking at this of saying like, oh, we need to clear all of this out. If this client has 18, 20 years of intense trauma mm-hmm. from childhood and their home life and all these things going on, that may be exhaustive. And so their healing process may not be condensed into a one year period with us when we take care of it all. Right. It might be over three years, five mm-hmm. years, 10 years mm-hmm. of this kind of ongoing process of healing where they come in and out and they work on different pieces of that, um, in their life. I think of it as if you had someone who wanted to come and lose a hundred pounds and you said, you've got this one program in one year and you're going to knock it all out Yeah. instead spread it out. Maybe they lose 30 and then they come back and they lose 40 more. And mm-hmm. you know, it's this ongoing journey for them. I have a lot of clients that, do this. that they, they bounce in and out of therapy and they do great work. And then it's almost like we really naturally come to this point where we're looking at each other going, you need a break. Yes. You need, you need to, to go, assimilate all of this. Go assimilate. Go on vacation. You know, prioritize the money that you're taking for therapy and like go to Hawaii for a minute or something. Right. You know, I mean, not everybody can go to Hawaii. Wouldn't that be lovely? But truly, you know, giving our clients permission to have an ebb and a flow in their treatment is really a gift. Um, now that's a luxury that not everybody has. Sometimes it's a, a one-time opportunity and they have to take advantage of it. But just remember that when we can give them that freedom, it can be really, really therapeutic. And they can come back in mm-hmm. rejuvenated, mm-hmm. ready to go rather than that. Oh, we've got to go Exhausted. into this again. Yes. Yeah. I think we just got off on a soapbox somewhere. <laughs> it's a really important and relevant soapbox though. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Circling back to float back. Yeah. Well, so one of the things we talked about, you know, using it in history taking, using it as an interweave in the midst of our process to find whatever that blocking memory is. The other one that we haven't talked about yet is doing it as a deep dive, almost a an exploration when there's something going on with a client and we're we're just not quite sure what in the world it's it is. <laughs> Um, and we're feeling a little bit stumped. And so this is a tool that we can use to do exactly that, to do a little bit of exploration into their subconscious and say, what's back there that might be feeding that? Um, Some of you in your training might have been introduced to the idea of something called the affect scan. The affect scan is a version of the float back that is particularly good for this kind of exploratory um, and investigative history taking. Um, and it's focused on the body sensation rather than an explicit memory or an explicit image that they can point to. Um, and so, you know, Jen, I don't know if you want to give an example of that. I've got, I I do this a lot with clients, especially towards the end of treatment is Mm -hmm. when this comes up. It's kind of like, you know, we've done all this really good work, but there's still this one thing that comes up every once in a while. There's still this sensation that bothers me. A lot of times the affect scan for me is I, I use it when we know there's trauma, you know, there's complex trauma, there's trauma throughout their life, but there's a point in which they can't really remember mm-hmm. what it was. So mm-hmm. there, there's no explicit memory storage at that point, whether it's due to age or it's due to the trauma itself. Um, a lot of times the affect scan for me helps clients identify things that are 
pre-verbal yeah. because they don't have negative cognizant, cognitions to associate with those experiences. Um, they don't have a lot of language to, to store the memory or to express the memory. And so we find them in those pre-verbal ages, so really young. Sometimes they're not even, they don't know if they're even real things. They're just things that pop up that represent a certain feeling that they hold, mm-hmm. like this low level of anxiety that just kind of is always constant. Mm-hmm. And they may have a diagnosis of generalized anxiety and you just right. always have anxiety because you're born that way. Right. But it's we can Your really go in and you find and trying to torture you. Right. <laughs> we can go in and find, hey, maybe it's it's not just a chemical component, maybe it is, but maybe there's trauma there. Something that happens early early in life when um, you know, even prenatal, we mm-hmm. might get into some of mm-hmm. those experiences. I just did a work with the client where we targeted her in her mother's womb. Mm-hmm. And that's that really far fetched out there stuff that we get eye rolls about mm-hmm. of like, how oh, really crazy, but just try it. You'll so love it. effective, <laughs> so effective. Um, so that, that comes up. And for me, affect skin oftentimes helps us access those and get to that piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, so some notes about, you know, using the flow back or the affect skin in this way. Number one, we do not do this at the beginning of treatment with people. This is something that we we use when we have a lot of rapport, a lot of resourcing, a lot of stability. Um, And, you know, it's hard to say, like, how long does it take to get before somebody is ready for this? This is a clinical decision that you have to make. But what you're looking for is that the client could handle the ambiguity of what may come up. One of the things that we run into that's a block for a lot of clients is they, they feel like something happened but there's not any explicit information to explain rationally, to give them explicit information that they can really hang on to and say, okay, now I know, I know for sure. When we're doing this more exploratory kind of stuff, we have to know that the client could tolerate the ambiguity of maybe they'll never know. Mm -hmm. We can still process any sensation that they're holding in their body. Whatever distress is there, we can go after it and usually clear it. But what they have to know is that that doesn't mean that we're going to have all the information at the end of that. A a float back, an affect scan, an EMDR processing is not memory retrieval. Right. Sometimes it happens, but I never, ever promise it. I don't even go anywhere near, you know, suggesting that it may happen. The only thing that we, we do is that if they have that question... Um, then we want to answer it as honestly as we can and say memories may come up, but a lot of the time when they're that early or that traumatic, they're fragmented. They're bits and pieces. And one of the things I always say to clients is if the memory didn't get laid down, there's nothing there to find. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to find it. And that's okay because it doesn't mean that we can't process it. And at the end of the day, what matters is that the client gets relief. And that's what I tell them. If we can get it to release, whatever is in your body, whatever is in those memory networks, if we can get that to shift, that's all that matters. And whatever explicit information is needed in order for that to happen will come up. Um, and that's just something to really know, like both, both for your own sake, we're not on a fishing expedition at all when we're doing this. And, you know, helping to really consider that the, the focus is sometimes it's what's traumatic and disturbing is that they don't remember, they don't right. understand it, or um, there's something really uneasy about that. And so the focus of processing may be more on how do I come to peace and grips with the idea that I don't know, or I don't have that memory. Mm-hmm. How do I still find resolution and still have 
you know, process the disturbance and move more into that positive cognition, the installation of that. And I, can my resolution be without all of the answers right. and all of the details? Right. So useful interweaves in that situation are things like, can I be okay if I never know for sure? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Can I feel safe now, even if I don't know that I was safe back then? Right. Those kinds of interweaves to really help them separate from that idea that I can't be okay unless I know for sure. That's, that's what we're trying to break. That is a blocking belief for a lot of clients if they have stuff in their history that they're confused about and uncertain about, which happens for a lot of our clients. So we want to go through the script with you guys so that you can hear what a float back sounds like. Um, so Jen's going to go through that script and uh, just kind of listen, but I just want to say, don't actually try to follow along, especially if you're driving right now. (laughs) In our demonstration that we'll have listed after this, you'll get to hear it play out. You'll get Mm -hmm. to hear client responses. Um, But just kind of as an overview um, of the script without the client on the other side, um, what we often do is walk through, and I'm going to just kind of go through my own not word for word script, but how I share this with clients. And most if you've got pieces afterwards mm-hmm. that you want to add into that. But what I usually start out with a client is, you know, as you bring up this recent event to this representative event of these symptoms, you notice that recent experience, can you describe or tell me an image that represents the worst part of that for you? And as you hold that image in your mind, what negative belief feels true about yourself now? What feelings do you feel as you bring that up? And where do you feel that in your body? So in that, we've got it loaded and ready to go. And And Jen, are you letting the client answer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for (laughs) acknowledging that. You'll see that in the demonstration. (laughs) There's a pause in between each of those. Uh I don't have a response to their answers. I'm not asking follow-up questions to their answers. We're just loading up the target in Mm -hmm. this. So then if you're comfortable, close your eyes. Notice the image, those negative words, the emotions that you feel and where you feel them in your body. And as you do that, let your mind float back to an earlier time when you've experienced those same things. And let me know what comes up. At that point, I give a very long pause And they're kind of doing their own search. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes they immediately, oh, I've got this. And Mm -hmm. it comes to mind very quickly. And sometimes they they pause on that for a while, almost as if they're flipping through the files. Mm -hmm. So whatever they answer in that moment, um, I just do a brief note on my paper. I say, okay, we're going to do this again. Very good information. I've got note of that. So I want you to bring up that um, negative cognition, the emotions that you feel, and notice where you feel them in your body and just let your mind float back to an even earlier time where you may have experienced those same things. As again, we pause, they respond. I'm going to do this three, four times. Um, and then usually after that, I'll say, can you notice I'll walk through the whole thing again. Um, let your mind float back to the earliest time that you believed you experienced those same things. So that's kind of my final one to see if there is anything younger. Usually after doing it three, four, five times, we'll get, um, you know, pretty young at that point, but then just helping them to do one final search of, is there the earliest? When do I see that? 
Um, and as they bring up a memory, sometimes they'll identify their age at that time. Sometimes they won't. That's usually a follow-up question that I will ask about what age do you think you were in this? Not getting hung up in the details, but around what age do you think you were? Mm-hmm. In the flowback I do, I, I don't think all scripts follow this, but I always say, can you float to an earlier time? I always give that directive to earlier because there may be 70 times right. <laughs> where they felt that same thing. Yeah. And we don't need an exhaustive list of every single time that they felt those or just another time, but we're just trying to help them get like one level deeper, one mm-hmm. level deeper, one level deeper until we find what is that very um, early base, you know, earliest time when they had that experience. Mm-hmm. Some prep that I usually give clients and I would recommend, especially if you've got clients that like to talk. Um, is that I tell them when we're doing this, we don't want a lot of detail because we don't want to activate the memory. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ways that we make sure that the float back does not lead to compensation is we don't actually let the client get into the details of the memory. Um, The analogy that I give them is I want you to just touch the surface of the memory without diving in. Um, And that keeps them from having that big wave of sensation and affect and all that. That can be very overwhelming for them. So what I say is all I need is a label. It doesn't even have to make sense to me. As long as you know what it means, we're going to come back and talk about it later. Um, And then I'll reiterate when, you know, when I'm reading the script to him and say, and just give me a label for that and I'll write it down and Mm -hmm. we'll keep going. And just give me a label for that, especially if they have a tendency to get sucked into details. We can say that as often as we need to. Just need a real quick label, one or two words, and then we're just going to keep going. We want them to continue moving, especially if they're tolerating it well, because moving quickly keeps them from sinking in and getting too deep. And that's really what we want. We're just trying to make a list at this point. If we get into details, we're having a whole different kind of session, and that's not what we're we're trying to do in that moment. Um Another relevant thing is that doing this is one of the times that we come up with a lot of clusters of memories. Uh, Like Jen was saying, there can be 70 examples of the same kind of thing. It's really appropriate at this point that if somebody starts saying, well, every time my dad did this and that happened like every day. So just write down that label, dad did this thing every day and just move on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not a reasonable target. We're going to have to come back to that and flesh that out a little bit. But for that point, we just need the name of that cluster um, and we can move on from there. Another note is that in some trainings, um, they have you in that very same moment, take a SUD rating on every single one of those. Personally, I don't find that's necessary. A SUD rating is a snapshot in time and it is not going to be relevant to when you come back to process that later on if you do that in the midst of a float back. And I also find that for anybody that I'm nervous about decompensation, asking them to give an accurate assessment of the distress in that moment is having them sink in too deeply. So I don't do that. And that's just a personal preference of mine. I'll say times when I do use that is if if I'm using this as a, a proactive approach, more of a treatment planning tool and we may not be going as deep into each each experience but we're identifying what those are the sud and i i will let them know like i don't want you to really activate this and give me the sub but just super brief as i go through these i'm going to say each one you just tell me real quick how disturbing does it feel right in this moment Mm -hmm. um i get that to help determine are there some potential low impact targets from that list? Mm-hmm. So if I want to do not just a, a low impact target or a target that's not really that disturbing, 
as a way to introduce them and kind of ease them in. If we need to do a more progressive approach with them, but we still want it associated with that same memory network, that may give me, oh, hey, we have this three or four, five on this one compared to the 10. Right. And we could do one or two of those that we're bringing in some good adaptive material as we process that in that network. And then we go after the touchstone. Then we get down to the very earliest or the very worst experience down the road. So that would be a scenario when I use that, but we're not having them really activate the memory and then tell you how disturbing it is. It's just very brief, kind of like running through it. What do you initially notice? All right, guys. So those are our main thoughts on the float back. This is a really big topic and please feel free to email us your questions. Um, and we'll probably come back around and talk about this again at some point. And, uh, we are going to do a live demonstration. I have lovingly volunteered to be a guinea pig for this. (laughs) She's so brave. I know. (laughs) I think that I have chosen something that's going to feel safe and and appropriate. Um, But that's a nice thing about recording. If it goes terribly wrong, we don't have to let you listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before we go today, we just want to let you know that our sponsor for today's episode um, is somebody that you guys have heard us talk about, but we want to encourage you again to uh, get connected with her. Her name is Catherine Keller. She has been our knight in shining armor um, in terms of getting us organized and with a business plan and an advertising plan. Um, and it's just really kind of shown us the way in terms of uh, what it means to really expand in a smart way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is offering a, uh, a free consultation for our listeners. Um, Jen, if you want to read the website off, because the last time I tried to read it, I screwed it up. <laughs> so it's Catherine Keller dot <laughs> dot net backslash emdr so k-a-t-h-e-r-i-n-e k-e-l-l-e-r dot net backslash e-m-d-r mm-hmm. and I, I do have to say if you guys go to look at our website if you haven't yet um www.beyondhealingcenter.com she did all of that yeah it's beautiful not yeah. to like brag on us which is really not bragging on us because <laughs> no, it had nothing hurt. to do with it but she made us the most beautiful website um absolutely love it and she did all of it she helps us with all of it um so she her skill set is so diverse she does websites she has marketing she just does the little things that make it all so much easier like how do we automate a process mm-hmm. so you don't have to spend so much time on that yeah Um, encouraging, supporting, giving ideas for growing your business. So any of you private practice people out there, she is phenomenal and she specifically focuses on on small businesses and healers and helpers like us. Yeah. So So. she has a lot of insight just in in our industry and and how to, you know, be a business person and really have that kind of mindset, but also still be human and client focused um, and not get caught up in the business details that all of us really hate. So I can't encourage you enough to look into that and take advantage of the deal that she's giving our our listeners. So, And that's katherinekeller.net backslash EMDR. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening today. Send us an email or comment on uh, Facebook or Instagram with your questions, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. 
And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. Thank you.